The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. As is our normal practice, would you join me as we pray and ask the Lord for help? Father in heaven, we're asking that you would help us to see more of Jesus this morning. Would you satisfy us with your steadfast love so that we would be changed and transformed even this morning as we celebrate the resurrection? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you remember when this happened in 2009. It was a cold morning on January 15th, 2009, when an Airbus A320 took off from LaGuardia Airport in New York City. And it was attempting to reach cruising height and altitude, but then all of a sudden it hit a flock of Canada geese. And these are big birds. And so both engines failed. And the captain of U.S. Airways Flight 1549, Chelsea Burnett Solenberger, who was known as Soli, had to quickly decide, what do we do? Could they try to get back to LaGuardia Airport in time before they crashed in a highly populated area? Or could they make it perhaps to Teterboro Airport in New Jersey? And instead, Soli and his co-pilot realized and executed a dramatic and heroic emergency water landing on the Hudson River. Probably the most heroic water landing that we have in recent memory. All 155 people on that plane survived. Everyone's life on that plane hinged upon one man's action in one moment of time. One moment, one singular event decided the fate of everyone. And so it is with the resurrection this morning. One moment in time, one man, and it decides the fate of the entire world. This morning, we come to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, which is the most significant event in all of human history. It's the hope of humanity. It's the linchpin of the Christian faith, and it is of unparalleled unparalleled significance. And so we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, which is answering the question, what's the big deal about the resurrection? Why is the resurrection so significant? Why does the resurrection matter? Now, the problem that Paul was addressing that the Corinthians had isn't exactly the same problem we have this morning, but he's made it explicit in verse 12. If you have your Bible, look there with me. He says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? And and the issue that was at work is that the Corinthians, from their Greco-Roman worldview, said that there's no bodily resurrection at all. That, that, you know, the kind of the spirit is good, but the body is bad, and so there's just going to be no bodily resurrection. Or perhaps they were even influenced by Epicurean philosophy that denied kind of life after death entirely. But either way, they were saying, you kind of enter into your afterlife without the physical body. And that's the particular question that Paul's addressing, the particular issue, if you will. 
And, and while we don't have that same issue, we, we, don't, we either believe that there's a resurrection or we don't, but we don't necessarily think, you know, Jesus was resurrected, but there's no physical bodily resurrection. Uh, I wonder how many of us have similar misguided beliefs about the afterlife. When you think about heaven, what do you think about? For a long time, I thought I'm going to be this fat cherub wearing a loincloth, playing my harp, maybe a bow and arrow. I don't know what that's for. Uh, I'm probably thinking of Cupid. Uh, and, and I'm waiting for choir practice to happen every day at 2 p.m. Doesn't sound great. No offense to the choir, right? It, it's, just, it's just this idea of, is heaven going to be any good? If heaven doesn't have hugs and prime rib and baseball and coffee and chocolate, will I want to be there at all? And, and, and we think we're just going to be these disembodied spirits floating around in heaven. Or, or perhaps some of us, maybe if you're not trusting in Jesus, you're not a believer here this morning, we're so glad you're here, we're so glad visitors are here, but you, you think there, there's no such thing as the miraculous, you know, the, the Bible is just full of all these stories, but that's all they are. You don't believe there's an afterlife at all. If science can't explain it, it must not exist. Or if it does exist, it doesn't sound all that interesting. I'd rather be partying it up in hell with my friends. And, and the reality is that hell is not going to be much of a party. Or perhaps some of you are like me. When I was a kid, I remember, you know, there would often be teaching, you know, Jesus could come back at any moment. And I was thinking, that's great. I, I just want to get married first and kind of experience marital bliss or maybe, you know, get, get, get to go to summer camp or, or see some, you know, really big thing that I was looking forward to, right? Maybe I could drive, get my driver's license before Jesus came back and, and that would be great. I wonder if some of us are there this morning. So the Corinthians, just like many of us today, have all these wrong ideas about what happens to us when we die. They think there's no resurrection of the body, but what Paul is trying to tell them and teach them is that that belief leads to disastrous effects. It has disastrous effects because the entire Christian faith rests on that one singular moment. If the resurrection happened, everything Jesus said is true. And if the resurrection didn't happen, nothing he said is true. And while this sermon isn't going to be about heaven, it's just good to remind us that heaven is going to have all of the joys and the things that give us fuzzy feelings and tears of joy and goosebumps and smiles, and yet it's going to be without any corruption and oppression and abuse and injustice and suffering and pain and cancer and thorns and bruises or death. In the first service earlier, we, we, we baptized someone, uh, a young girl who has no use of her legs. She has a, a, I don't know exactly what it's called, but she cannot walk. And in heaven, she will be running and leaping and dancing with full use of her legs. So, so what we think about the resurrection really matters for us this morning. So what we think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the most important, the most urgent question that we could possibly consider this morning. 
And there's only two options, and the consequences are monumental. And so what I want to do is help us see that in our passage this morning. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to open it up. Uh, All of these points are going to come out of our text here, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 19. And the way it works is Paul is saying, well, if you think that there's no resurrection of the body, here are the seven consequences of that reality. So the first one comes in verse 13. So let me just read verse 12 again. He says, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? And then now he says, here are all the various consequences of that. The first one comes in verse 13. He says, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. His point there is that if you deny the bodily resurrection, then you eliminate the possibility of Christ's resurrection and everything in the Christian faith hinges on this one thing. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he is just a decomposing corpse. And I don't know about you, but I don't think that's a very good savior to have. I I don't want to spend my time worshiping a decomposing corpse. The whole Christian faith rests on Jesus rising, conquering sin and death, ruling and reigning on high. If Jesus rose from the dead, everything he said is true. And if he didn't, we're all screwed. You see, for Paul, denying the resurrection is like denying the very existence of the sun. None of us have ever touched the sun. None of us have ever been able to put the sun under our microscope in order to see it. Very few of us even understand how it works. And we don't understand all of its ins and outs. And yet we know that without the sun, we dwell in darkness. Everything freezes, nothing grows, and we get depressed. None of us doubts that the sun rises every morning and will set every evening. All of human life hinges on the sun's existence. And so it is with the resurrection as well. Now, look with me at verse 14. Our second and third consequence come in verse 14. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The word vain there is not, you know, I look at myself in the mirror and say, oh, I'm so good looking. But rather it's this meaning of empty or senseless or being devoid of any value. So the word vain is the same word that Paul used in verse 10, where he said, God's grace to me was not in vain, meaning that it was effectual. It was useful in actually bringing about transformation in my life. Now, if Christ didn't rise from the dead then preaching about Jesus is useless, he says. It's vain, and it's even foolish. Why would we come together? Why would we gather and talk about a dead guy? Why do we sing songs to a dead guy? Why are Christians so obsessed with this dead guy? That's what Paul's saying. And he goes on, the third one is that not only is preaching in vain, but your faith is in vain. If Christ is not raised from the dead, if there's no resurrection of the body, then we have wasted our lives. It means I have wasted my life. I went to school in order to study how to read the Bible in the original languages. And I get up here almost every week and I tell you about Jesus Christ. And if he is dead, I am a fool and I have wasted my life and you have wasted your life listening. But if there's no resurrection, I will tender my resignation tomorrow and I will find a new job. On Sunday mornings, 
I don't know what other people do, but let's go play golf or have brunch or do something else. Because if Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead, we're all wasting our time. There are better things to do on a Sunday morning than to get dressed up and to come and worship a corpse. Paul is making clear that the gospel is all or nothing. You can't have it halfway. You can't just say, well, I'll take the good things that Jesus talked about. You know, that, that, that part about loving your neighbor. I really liked that stuff, but none of that. Pick up your cross and follow me and, and die to yourself. What Paul is saying, it's either all true or none of it is true. In the same way, Jesus rose from the dead and he's the only hope in this life, in the next, or it's all a lie. The fourth consequence comes in verse 15. Look with me there. He says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. He basically goes back and kind of restates all the various uh, kind of statements that if they're true, right? If, if Christ, if there's no resurrection of the body, then Christ isn't raised. And if Christ isn't raised, then we are found misrepresenting God to say that as shortly as possible, it's we're all liars. We're all liars if we've talked about Jesus being alive and he's actually dead. We're, we're guilty of being perjurers. It's, Paul sees nothing more serious than misrepresenting God. All the hundreds of witnesses of Jesus' resurrection are somehow delusional and deceived and even false witnesses. Nothing they wrote or said can now be true or trusted. Look with me in verse 16 and 17. This is the fifth consequence. He says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The fifth consequence is that our faith is futile, futile. He repeats the opening premise. If there's no resurrection, then Christ isn't raised. And if those things are true, then our faith is useless. This overlaps with vain such that it means to be of no use or fruitless or even powerless. But it's the same word used in James 1.26 where he says, if someone says that they're religious, but they don't bridle their tongue, it says that their religion is worthless. He's saying your faith is worthless if the resurrection is not true. Why? Well, believing in Jesus is worthless if there's no resurrection because the resurrection authenticates and confirms that Jesus indeed died for our sins. If he just died and never rose, then our sins still condemn us to hell. Think about it like this. Say you inherited $7 billion. You know, Elon Musk says, ah, I don't want Twitter. Uh, I'll give you $7 billion instead. And, and so you think, great. What do you do? You pay off the mortgage, maybe buy that new Tesla that you've been wanting. Uh, you know, you, you help out your friends. Maybe you give some to the church. You buy that lake house in northern Minnesota and, and you just start spending it. And, and then all of a sudden th- th- you get this email and they say, actually, sorry, it was an administrative error. It wasn't $7 billion. You actually inherited $70. What happens now? Well, a lot of the money's been spent. Maybe just $1 billion of the seven. And you think, that, that's bad news. I've just racked up more debt than I could pay off in my lifetime. 
That is not good news. And that's precisely what Paul is saying here. He's saying, if Christ is not raised from the dead, that means the debt still stands against us. Our sins are still attributed to us. We have not been forgiven and we're in big trouble. The resurrection is significant if you have ever sinned and if you're a sinner. And we're all sinners, according to the Bible. We have all done and thought and failed to do the things that God requires of us. Now, the sixth consequence comes in verse 18. He says, Then also, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So the sixth consequence is those who have died have perished forever. Here he's referring to those people who have died, not just fallen asleep, but both Christians in Paul's day and and today, death is considered this period of sleep where we will be reunited with Christ and then we'll be in our resurrected bodies at some point, and then we will dwell with Christ forever. But if there's no resurrection, not only are we in trouble, but everyone who has already died in Christ is still in their sins, and they have perished. They have no justification, no forgiveness, no atonement, no freedom from bondage, no reconciliation, no redemption, and no hope. The last time you were at a funeral— Do you remember what was said? We say things like, we'll meet again. They're in a better place. At least they're not suffering anymore. And yet, if the resurrection is not true, if it didn't happen, then all of those things just simply are untrue. We we can't say that. Death is an even more horrible enemy than we could possibly imagine. And then he concludes in verse 19. He says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the seventh consequences. Seventh consequence. We are to be pitied. The Christian life, all of it, falls apart if there is no resurrection. We have wasted our time. We have lived miserable lives. The word pitied means deserving of sympathy for one's pathetic condition. This is how he describes the Christian life without the resurrection of Jesus. Why gather to worship if Jesus is still dead? Why live moral lives if we're still going to be condemned for our sins? Paul's point is that the Christian goes all in on the resurrection. It's either true and I bank my entire life on it or it's not true. Now, some would say, well, aren't there benefits in the Christian life apart from the resurrection? You know, like you have some joy or peace or purpose or meaning or community. And yet all of those realities hinge upon the resurrection being true. And if the resurrection isn't true, then we're still in our sins. We're going to be condemned and we cannot have any confidence or peace. That's why Paul writes in Romans 8 that our current sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. So so Paul's logic in this passage is very simple. If you believe that there is no bodily resurrection from the dead, then Jesus Christ has not been raised. And if Jesus Christ has not been raised, everything in the entire Christian life completely falls apart. And, And Paul's trying to teach them that if you hold this view, it it, it leads to an absurd ending. It's not a good place to be. 
Now, that doesn't sound like the most encouraging Easter Sunday message this morning, is it? So look with me at verse 20. We're actually going to look at 20 to 28 next week. Pastor Brian's going to preach on that, but look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? We do not preach a dead corpse. We preached the very living Christ so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is ruling and reigning from the right hand of the Father right now. He has come out of the grave, and he rules and reigns from on high. And so this morning, we have a risen Christ. We don't preach a dead savior. We don't celebrate a corpse. We have a risen savior. We have a living savior right now. So I'm going to give us five reasons why the resurrection is true. They don't come out of this particular passage, but I just want us to see how the sweep of the entire Bible, as well as in what we find in kind of archaeological evidence all points to this reality that the resurrection is indeed true. So let me give us five reasons why the resurrection is true. The first is that the facts of Jesus have broad agreement. Almost everybody who has studied Jesus' life and death and resurrection agree on these four things. That Jesus was a real person in history. There is almost no dispute that Jesus lived. Second, He was publicly executed by crucifixion. There are so many records from even secular historians from that time that point to this reality. He was executed publicly by crucifixion so that everyone could see he died. Third, his tomb was empty and the body was missing. No one has ever found the body and everyone knows in reading the various accounts that yes, the tomb was empty and the body was missing. Now they have different theories of why the tomb was empty and why the body was missing, but his tomb was empty. Everyone agrees on this, whether Christian or non-Christian, very often if you've studied these things. And the fourth one is that his disciples really believed that he rose and appeared to them. All of them, including the 500 that we read about last week. Chuck Colson, some of you know this name, he was President Nixon's hatchet man. He was embroiled in the Watergate scandal, and he was later converted to Christianity when he was in jail. And he writes this about the resurrection. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. And then he goes on and he says, everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. And then he says, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. And they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The testimony of the apostles and all those who heard about the resurrected Lord points all in the same direction. 
There were people who never saw Jesus in the flesh, who heard from these apostles, heard the teaching, saw their own transformed life, felt these very realities, the Holy Spirit filling them, and they themselves said, I'm willing to die for this, and I've never even seen it with my eyes. So that was the first reason. The facts of Jesus are agreed upon. Second, extra-biblical sources even agree. There are secular sources that would even agree with what the gospel writers have written. Phallus describes three hours of darkness that were followed by an earthquake that occurred during Jesus' crucifixion. He he was just remarking upon how the sun didn't shine for three hours, or perhaps it was a solar eclipse, and, and then there was an earthquake. Well, we know why. Or Josephus, a first Uh, century historian, a Jewish first century historian, wrote all about Jesus' death and resurrection in great detail. Or some historians used to claim that Pilate and Caiaphas never existed, but were just made up by the apostles. And then in 1961, so this is not long ago, 1961, it was discovered in Caesarea, a first century inscription that confirms that Pontius Pilate was procurator of Judea from 26 to 36 AD. So again, all of the secular evidence, all the archaeological evidence point towards the reality of the resurrection. Number three, we we talked about this one last week. There were hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection, more than 500 people. And for those who have studied hallucinations, they have no record of a mass hallucination like that. And yet all of these witnesses of Jesus, there's not one discrepancy. They all see the same thing. All of these eyewitnesses, including Mary Magdalene, several other women who first came upon the empty tomb, the Roman guards, the disciples, the men on the road to Emmaus, the 500 people listed in 1 Corinthians fifteen six, and even skeptics like Jesus' half-brother James and Paul, who persecuted the church, agree. We saw his risen body. Number four, New Testament manuscripts all agree. The archaeological evidence that we have for the resurrection is not from hundreds of years later. But most scholars believe that what we read last week in 1 Corinthians 3 to 7 was this creed. And Paul had received this creed within probably three to five years after the crucifixion. And then the the writer of Luke and Acts, it's kind of one work, It was written fairly early because it doesn't record Paul's death. So it means that the Gospels and Acts were written soon after the events. And so that theory that this was all a made-up legend just doesn't hold water. And then number five, the disciples had no motive to lie. If they were good to tell a lie and even suffer and even die for a lie, there would have to be some really significant motive, like money or, or power to gain, but... The the disciples had no financial incentive, no fame to obtain, no acceptance to garner. Instead, what it brought them was persecution from the religious authorities. They were marginalized by the Romans, hated by the Jews, and they suffered physically and had nothing to gain. So our, our conclusion this morning on Easter Sunday is that the resurrection is true. It's the greatest reality in the entire world. But it's only good news if you receive it and believe it and treasure it for yourself. And I know that in 
a group this size, some of us would say, ah, it sounds kind of far-fetched. And the reality is either you're all in or you're not. Either the resurrection happened and everything that Jesus said is true and you have to wrestle with those realities or it's not true and we can all just go to brunch. And our prayer this morning is that you would see the logical conclusion of denying the bodily resurrection and see the consequences of denying the resurrection of Jesus. And then this morning that God would give you spiritual eyes to see the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Christ being raised from the dead. Paul writes in Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so we invite you this morning, wherever you're at, if you walked in joy-filled or weary, we invite you to partake in this good news. And the way that you do that is you say, Lord, I can't save myself. I need your help. I need you to save me, just like we saw in the baptisms. We die with Christ, and then our sins are forgiven, washed clean. That's why they wear red when they're in there, because our sins were as scarlet. And that's why there's white put over their shoulders afterwards, because we're washed white as snow because of Jesus' cleansing work. And that's only true if the resurrection is indeed true. Now, Our passage highlighted the seven consequences if the resurrection isn't true. But now what I want to do is turn that passage on its head and tell us the seven things that are true because the resurrection is indeed true. So here are the seven things. Jesus Christ, he's not dead, but he's been raised from the dead. He's alive, ruling and reigning from on high, and he is Lord. That's why we say this morning, Christ is risen, and you respond. He is risen Amen. That is where all of our hope lies. Second, Preaching Jesus isn't vain, isn't useless, it's not empty. I'm not going to resign tomorrow and find new line of work because Jesus Christ is alive and well. So preaching Jesus isn't useless, but it's the pathway by which people get saved. And I can't think of a better thing to do than to gather with all of us for three services and proclaim that Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. We have no greater hope than this one. This is the best news in all the world. And we should not be shy about proclaiming it from the rooftops. Number three, number three, faith in Jesus is not vain or useless. Your faith is not useless, but it leads to everlasting life and unspeakable joy this morning. You have something to be truly happy about this morning morning. Number four, those who testify about God are not liars. They're not misrepresenting God, but they are loving truth tellers of the greatest news in all the world. And so as you gather with some friends or neighbors or family who don't know Jesus, don't shy back. This is the greatest news. Call them to consider these realities. If you're here this morning, we want you to wrestle with these realities. We would love to walk with you in doing so, in reading the Bible with you so that you could see them for yourself. Number five, our faith is not futile, but our faith leads to salvation because our sins have truly been forgiven. 
that massive debt that stood against us, that long list, it's been forgiven because of the blood of Christ. And number six, those who've died in Christ have not perished, but are right now living forever. That's why Christians say we grieve the death of loved ones, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope because we have an everlasting hope because of the resurrection of Christ and therefore the resurrection of all those who are in Christ. And number seven, those who hope in Christ only are not to be pitied, but in fact are to be envied. We are the envy of the world because we have the greatest news in the world. So, I imagine most of us, we're going to have these feasts and brunches and lunches and dinners where we will pull out the ham and we will pull out the prime rib and the lamb and uh, maybe the homemade sourdough and for some of you, jello salad, I imagine. (laughs) I'm not judging. And, and, and some of us are salivating and some of us know, you know, we're looking at the time I got to get back and pop something in the oven. And we're looking forward to this feast and we're looking forward to this meal and we're looking forward to this celebration to gather with friends and the decorations. And, and that's all good and right. Maybe the kids are looking forward to the Easter egg hunt and that's all good and right. But we have something more glorious to look forward to. And that is our physical bodies being raised with Christ. And we will enjoy all the spoils of heaven and we will gaze upon Jesus face to face. And that's why the resurrection of Jesus is the most marvelous miracle in all of human history. It's the most meaningful moment of humanity. It's the most significant story in all of scripture. It's the most powerful phenomenon on the face of the earth. It's the most spectacular and staggering news for sinners like us this morning. It's the most impressive display of divine devotion that has ever been shown. It is the most decisive deliverance for a doomed people that will ever come about. It's the most amazing rescue for ruined sinners. It's the greatest message to memorialize and to meditate upon this morning. There is nothing, nothing that we should talk about other than this reality. It's the most astounding act of love. It's the most astounding act of love that has ever been shown and that will ever be shown for you. While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. It's the only hope for a helpless and hopeless world. I know right now, some of us are crushed under the weight of, of sin and sickness and death in our own bodies and in the bodies of others. And it weighs heavy on our hearts. We could cry if we thought enough about it. And yet we have good news. These old broken bodies will be resurrected and they will be renewed bodies with Jesus forever. It is the most astonishing announcement for all ages and it's the most urgent truth to consider this day. So have you considered this truth? As the worship team makes their way back up front and gathers to lead us in our last song, let me go back to our opening question. Why does the resurrection matter? Because everything, everywhere, in all of life hinges on this one singular reality. The stakes have been raised. It's not Captain Sully landing a plane on the Hudson. 
But it's Jesus Christ who was piloting the greatest event in all history. He's rescued from every nation and tribe and people and language for his everlasting glory and for our everlasting joy. And that's why we can sing, Oh, death, where is your sting? There is no more sting. Oh, death, where is your victory? There is no victory for death because our God is alive. Jesus has been raised from the dead and we will live with him forever. Amen? Amen. Father, we do just confess once again, we want these truths to enliven our hearts so that we would see afresh the beauty and the majesty of Christ. And for those who are far off, oh, would you draw them near? for your glory and for your purposes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.